All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Beautiful evening. Um, not as hot as last time, which I think is a big plus. Uh, and, and somebody suggested, by the way, maybe we should reverse it so that I'm down there and then people are coming in at the back instead of at the front. And then you can get booze easier, I think, is the idea. <laughs> so uh, maybe I will, we'll, we'll ponder that. I think that might be a good idea. We'll, have, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, this evening is the history of philosophy and 16 questions. Question number three should be an easy one to answer, which is how should people live? Now, uh, and of course, as I keep saying, I'm not giving answers, I'm just throwing questions at you. That's why it's a history of philosophy and 16 questions, no answers promised. Now the idea here is, is it's natural for us to assume the notion of choice. We, we, we are the freest people history has ever known. No one has ever had the kind of opportunities to express themselves, to live different ways. They didn't have the material resources, they didn't have the legal freedoms, they didn't have the intellectual freedoms to make choices. And, and for most of human history, that is how people lived. It's important to know, just think, if you're a peasant, and it's you know 6,000 years ago, which is to say you're pretty much like everybody else, you work on some large agrarian estate. You're not literate. Just that fact alone narrows your access to the world so dramatically that we, I think we just can't hardly comprehend it. Um, you would not know anything about the world that you, you hadn't heard from somebody that you knew or that was within easy walking distance of where you were born. Because you, you would never have left that environment. So your view of the world is incredibly narrow. Your opportunities for self-expression are virtually zero. The uh, example I like to use all the time is uh, in, in the Middle Ages, so this is much later on, by the way, but is representative of, of world history. In the Middle Ages, we have good records then, and you had famine one out of four years. So three years of good harvest, one year of famine. That's roughly your rule. In years of famine, the peasants sold their clothes to buy food. And so much of the population would be naked all winter. So even if you had potentially some intellectual freedom, which you didn't, by the way, but even if you did, your opportunities to express yourself materially were extraordinarily constrained because what you were trying to do is what most people have been trying to do for all of human history, which is not die. You weren't interested in how to live. That question never occurred to you. The question that occurred to you was, what can I do today so I don't die? And that question just recurred until you died, which was on average for women, by the way, in around 900, was about 24. Men made it to the ripe old age of about 28. So, you know, the, the, your life was just not that pleasant, and certainly you didn't have a lot of opportunity to reflect on the meaning of it all. However, uh, one unique point in history, it actually happened several times, we're going to visit the same event in China, which happened roughly at the same time, by, by the way, in a future uh, lecture. A group of people achieved enough wealth, enough material uh, surroundings, enough intellectual and legal freedom, that they were able to begin to ask the question, how should I live? What should I do? What makes a good life? Remember, up until this time, not dying made a good life. The next thing that comes after not dying makes a good life is doing whatever you're told so that somebody doesn't kill you. So this is the sort of the steps of civilization. And then, at this point, we're going to look at the Greek world, we'll look at the Chinese world again in the future. Um, and all over the Greek world, by the way, we always think of Athens, but it wasn't just Athens. We just have the most documents from Athens. Uh, people started to look around, and as I mentioned before, it's crazy in the Greek world because you've got Egypt on one side and Persia on the other side, and you have all of these small Greek city-states all over the place, and they all do different things. And so you had exposure to all kinds of different ways of living. And this caused people to stop and start going, hey, if there's all of these different ways that people do things, what's the right way for someone to live? 
And more or less, this is the first time in history people were able to actually ask this question systematically. Because you had a small population of citizens, by the way, you know, they, they only made up maybe, because it's, of course you've got to be males, you have to be adult males, you have to be a citizen, and you have to be relatively well off. And so that combination in Athens was maybe 10% of the population. In other cities, states, it was probably much less. And yet, by all historical standards, this was unprecedented. And so what happens, amazingly, is about 100 years, from about the 5th century to about the 4th or 3rd century, depending on how you want to think about it, even score these things differently, uh, people started to say, well, how should I live? And here's a list of the answers that they gave. Just so you know, the, the, they just answered everything. Every possible answer came out immediately in, in historical standards. So Socrates said, famously, uh, right action for the right reasons. You need to pursue knowledge, because knowledge will tell you what the right thing is to do. Uh, wisdom is the most important goal. Um, and nobody ever does uh, evil or harm knowingly. They only do it out of ignorance, hence wisdom is so important. We never knowingly do bad. We only do bad because we're, we're wrong-headed or ignorant. So the goal of life is to pursue wisdom because wisdom will allow you to do everything correctly, and it's the best possible life, um, which is sort of the, this is why philosophers love Socrates, because Socrates says, yes, being a philosopher is the best possible life, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and there, but um, there's other, uh, Aristotle there, moral virtue is generally the path between extremes, the golden mean, uh, guided by wisdom, and the goal is happiness, but note here the Greek concept of, that's translated as happiness um, is better translated, there's no good translation for it really, but think thriving or vital or um, uh, sort of filled with, it means to be possessed with the spirit of life. And, and so it just means thriving and vital, not necessarily like we are having a fun time. So a, a struggle is it can be a big part of it because we're, we're vital when we struggle. Uh, so that, that was very different from Socrates though, who says you're just supposed to pursue wisdom. Um, and then you get the Stoics who emphasize reason above all things. And the Stoics were really big on civic virtue. So they believed you should participate in the politics of running your state because they say if the best people don't run your city-state or your country, then of course the worst people will. And so the Stoics believed that you should be detached from the world. It has certain elements of Buddhist detachment about it. You should pursue human reason as the highest calling because reason is what separates us from the animals. And you should not be attached to the external world. Epicureans, on the other hand, said you should pursue happiness and pleasure, but they thought of pleasure as absence of pain. You should never pursue participate in politics because that's just going to make your life unhappy. Right? It's just going to be complicated and evil and people won't like you and you'll have to go to meetings and it's, you know, it's awful in every way. So they said, no, so this is important to know. So Epicurus said, you should just stay in your garden, which I think is correct. Uh, and, and you should, and, and you should uh, uh, um, avoid the outside world and pursue the simple pleasures that make life rich. Um, by the way, he also allowed women into his school, which, which was just infamous that someone would think that women could actually be an equal participant in pursuing the best life and had the minds and, and the hearts capable of, of absorbing that and contributing to it. Um, and so that was a bad call. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, not so much on the women. Uh, Epicurus, right there. The Stoics, they didn't seem to care. They were, they were detached. Uh, Plato, duty and virtue. But he, Plato's big on duty, and he does, if you read, read the Republic, which is sort of a manifesto for a horrible totalitarian oppressive state, um, he, he was very much about subsuming the individual to the will of the group so that you could have order. He viewed basically chaos as the enemy, which is reasonable, right? But his solution is, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but but, but that's, that was his idea. So totally different from the Epicurean, somewhat different from the Stoics, very different from Socrates. Uh, he was a long-running argument with Aristotle. Of course, he didn't know this because Aristotle came after him. But Aristotle argued a lot of these points. Um, the, then you have the cynics uh, who were basically, they wanted to suspend judgment as much as possible. They're like, well, we don't know. 
ask a cynic anything and they'll be like, meh, maybe. <laughs> What's the best possible thing to do? Ooh, don't know. How do you make a decision? Well, sometimes you have to decide, but you really don't want to be attached to that decision because mm, who knows? And the, and the cynics were really, they, 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 you would think this would freeze them, but it didn't freeze them. It just made them really no fun to debate with. Uh, and, so, and so the other philosophers did not like the cynics because they're always going, well, maybe, sure, that's possible. Perhaps, maybe. Yeah, but, but they would never go farther than that. And so people said, well, you have to do this. And they're like, well, not so much. Not so much. Yeah, so they're very uh, just skeptical. Uh, so the, we use the word, they didn't mean cynical, like we use the word cynical. Just think of it as like robust, total, complete skepticism about everything. Um, and so you just sort of had to do the best you could with what you had and not get too hung up about things. They were rarely like, just let's not get hung up on things. That was sort of their key idea. Um, there's, there's chairs back there, feel free to grab a couple there. Um, uh, cynics, Plato, uh, oh, uh, Cyrenaics, okay, just not the cynics, by the way. Um, uh, you got like these basically hedonists. One should seek immediate short term pleasure as the means to the best possible life. Bodily pleasures are the easiest to acquire, so you should probably go to those. They weren't against mental pleasures, they just thought they were confusing and difficult to get. Whereas, for instance, really good cider is easy to get. So, right, you know, this, so the hedonists were like, just enjoy yourself. And by the way, they didn't think you accumulated pleasure. You just went from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure to pleasure. So you have the Stoics who are saying, well, don't know. Like, just forget all this pleasure stuff. And you have the, the Cyrenaics who are going, you know, pleasure, what, I don't know why you would do anything else. And you have the Cynics who are going, mm, maybe. <laughs> Could be. I don't know. Uh, and then we have what the more general outlook of the Greek world in which they were operating. So you have uh, Callicles here. I'm giving Callicles some, some floor time because no one ever talks about him. He's the guy, if you ever read the, the, the Socratic dialogues, which are great and brilliant by Plato, um, the, the, I think the best and strangest one is the Gorgias, in which Socrates does the same thing he always does, which is all oh, the best possible life, is pursuit of wisdom, and, and generally in these dialogues he says, well, won't you give me that, you know, birds fly on Wednesday? And somebody says, yes. And then the next thing you know, he's convinced them that evil is good and good is evil. And they're like, wow, how did he do that? <laughs> Callicles does not fall for it. So he runs into this guy, Callicles, and he starts on his stuff. And finally, Callicles just says, no, the best possible thing is to express your energy, your mind, and your power to the fullest extent. You want power and money so that you can live as full as possible, help your friends, and live a complete life. And Socrates is like, no, 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 no. And they argue for a little bit, and then Callicles just says, no, you're just wrong, Socrates. Let's just cut this off. And Gorgias, the, the person that it's named after, says, well, let's listen to him. And Callicles goes, really? And Gorgias says, yeah. And he goes, okay. And so for the rest of the argument, Socrates says all this stuff, and all Callicles says is, okay, if it makes you happy, Sure, can we finish now? Are we done? And Socrates just badgers him and badgers him. He's like, okay, sure, can we go now? Are we done? Are you finished? Because he expresses what is not, and usually he's very beat up on in philosophical history because we know Socrates is good, and so Callicles must be wrong. But this position, I think, is very representative of, of, of what more Athenians thought than Socrates, which is, if you have capacities, what you want is the resources and opportunity to express them. And so he thought the pursuit of the fullest capacity to express your power, your ideas, your individuality is the best possible life. And he just thought any other answer was silly, and so he just didn't listen to Socrates. And Socrates is essentially yelling at him. And, 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 and Callicles just is like, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> so you could stop yelling at any moment. Um, but I think that idea is very much more representative of the general Greek ideal, right? That, that that's really what you're trying for. You're striving for power and resources for yourself and your friends so that you guys in, in your community and your family can live as fully and freely and totally as possible. It's not crazy, but it's certainly different from pretty much everybody else. And then two that need to be mentioned, one is Achilles. Because Achilles is the great image from the Iliad, which is the great book of the Greek world. 
And Achilles' notion is you live for excellence and fame. Not for pleasure, not for detachment, not for wisdom, not for duty or virtue, but for fame. And you achieve fame through excellence primarily by killing people. So you kill people as fast as you can and as aggressively as you can, and then that's the best thing. Now, Achilles was a model. It's important to remember that, that during the Greek classical era, uh, Athens, for instance, was at war three out of every four years. And so the notion of, of having very powerful, militant sort of physical role model and the notion of pursuit of fame was not, again, crazy. But again, it's totally different from like the Epicureans. If you're in a war, you don't want a bunch of Epicureans. They're like, wow, that looks unpleasant. <laughs> Let's avoid that altogether. And the cynics are probably like, I don't know, how do you choose a side? Let's not choose a side. I can see a point on each side. Everybody's got a good idea here. Let's just settle down, right? But Achilles, that's the like, no, just point me in a direction and I'll start killing things. Famously, he attacked several gods in the Iliad. He was just sort of an all-purpose slaughter guy. Um, but he was considered a role model. Fame achieved through excellence. And then, uh, totally peculiar to me, um, is Alcibiades, because I love him. Um, and Alcibiades uh, gets no good play in the ancient world, even though I think he should, because he's an extraordinary uh, historical figure. But he was clearly seeking fame sort of through absolute fabulousness. Um, and he clearly represented one of the ideals of the Greek world, which is you just want to get as much money and much power as you can, and then you want to blow it on like big boats. And, and he was like the fast cars and big yachts and airplanes guy, right? Parties for your friends and you know, spend your money attacking your enemies and having fun with your friends and impressing everybody else. And that's what he did. Uh, and, and, but he was a role model for many Greeks. I mean, they exiled him twice or three times. I can't remember, two or three times he got exiled. Because they're like, oh, he's a great general. He's a great general. Well, we're scared of him. Let's get rid of him. Um, and so that notion of he was striving, but not necessarily for excellence per se, but just for notoriety and fame in its most pure form. So he would do anything. Um, also, it, he was uh, famously in love with Socrates, with whom he shared absolutely nothing in common. I mean, this is the great thing. He was Socrates' worst pupil of all time. Um, so if you read the symposium, you get that. So that's just so, so that's a quick overview of the possible answers to how should you live. And notice, there's no answer at all. This gives you nothing because it gives you basically every possible route. The only route that they really didn't articulate clearly was just get rich as possible. That's the one we've sort of added. But, um, but clearly this is the Alcibiades model, right? He was the, they never wanted to say that directly, but, but he's the one that came closest in the ancient world to just saying, no, pile up the cash and then blow it, and then pile up some more and then blow it. It's gonna be great, money, money is fun. Um, and so you get two things when you get this notion of ethics. By the way, this is roughly the question of ethics, uh, of, of how should one live, is just the asking of the question creates an imponderable, insoluble swamp. There's no good way to respond to this. So what follows the asking of the questions is this movement towards the, the faith-based religions. It's not that religion didn't exist before, but it takes on a very new tenor. Um, and the two examples, of course, that we use from the modern world uh, is what I have there at the beginning. So the five pillars of Islam, profession of faith, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet, prayer to said God and said prop, uh, prophet, Almsgiving, which is very tightly prescribed. It's not just random almsgiving. I mean, there, there are rules about this. Fasting, because of the God. And pilgrimages, that shows your dedication to the God. And then you get in the Ten Commandments, uh, I am the Lord your God. So God, God. Uh, there's no other gods. Okay. No idols, which seems redundant with no gods, but there you go. Uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And keep the Sabbath. 
And then you get a bunch of stuff you're not supposed to do. Don't kill people. Uh, don't covet thy neighbor's wife. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Actually, it says don't covet your neighbor's like oxen or stuff. But it's just, you know, don't want their stuff. So the answer to the problem of ethics generally is stop thinking and have faith. <coughs> Do what you're told. And that tension emerges not from before. People, we tend to think of history as going, oh, everyone's mind was closed and they're all in these benighted faith-based worlds. There's no evidence of this, by the way. What's really clear is animist traditions Everything is alive. Spirits everywhere. So everybody worship whatever you want. You worship everything. It's all available to you. Whatever makes you happy, go with that. When that gets slightly more systematized, it's almost entirely a power thing. You, you have to go along with what the community goes along with. They don't care whether you believe anything. You just have to do what they say. It's only when you start getting this exposure to different systems, different belief systems, and you get this primal question, how should you live, that people start searching for an answer to that question. And when you start searching for an answer to that question, one of the most popular answers is, I don't want to think about that question. <laughs> Probably the single most popular, by far, it's got to be the most popular. Don't make me ask that. I don't want to have to reflect on how I should live. So if you give me a system of rules that following those rules tells me that I'm living a good life, boom, I'm, I'm it's weird, because on one hand, this is the definition of not being free, but it also frees you up from all of that pondering about what the hell you should do. See, it's, so it solves a problem. And so people are always pondering this, historically it's one of those questions, where do all this really powerful faith-based religions come from? They come from the fact that people didn't know what the hell to do. And it's unnerving. Of course, the sort of peak of this is the existentialists who sort of reflect on this crisis a lot, the existential crisis. But as you can see, as soon as you ask the question, how should you live, you get the existential crisis because there's so many possible, so many different possible ways to live. And it's only gotten worse, of course. You just go through time, and the opportunities have gotten more and more and more uh, diverse. Until you reach today, of course, today we're just swamped. Think of, here's what I love. I mean, you got to love the internet. Love the internet. Uh, you have access to all the news of everything that's going on in the world all the time. You also have access to all history. This, is, this has never been true before. You've always been in a narrow little, which is great because it's so helpful. Right? If you're in a little box, it even who knows what's going on in China? We didn't even know China was there for a thousand years. China is booming. The West had no idea. China had no idea the West is out there. They had rumors, of course. There's certain barbarians over there who don't know what the hell's going on. They don't have an emperor. They don't know. Actually, the Chinese said they don't know that we rule them. That's how backwards they are. Right? This is the Chinese worldview at the time, because hence the Middle Kingdom. They're the Middle Kingdom because it's the middle of the universe. And so they, they rule everything, and some people know that they're ruled, and some people don't. Those are your barbarians don't, civilized people do. Um, but, but, but there's no access, no, almost no contact. Now it's, we have everything. What religion should you believe? Well, you've got you know, a supermarket full of religions to choose from. Historically, unprecedented. Usually you have one or die. And we, we look at historical situations, sort of places like maybe Baghdad or Sevilla in Spain um, or Constantinople, where they said, oh, these groups of different religious people live together in moderate peace, which is true-ish, except it's important to remember that you had to dress so that you could be immediately identified what religion you were. You could not move freely around, depending on which religion you were. Your religious group was ruled by your religious leaders. You were subject to their laws. The laws of the state you were in as well, by the way, but also by the laws of your religious fraternity. 
So if you're a Zoroastrian in Baghdad, which is ruled by the Islam at the time, you would be okay-ish, but your priests were responsible for you. So you had to follow the rules of Islam, you usually had to pay a tax, you had to dress, so we knew you were a Zoroastrian. And so it wasn't like religious freedom, it was more like you have to be a member of your religion and you have to let everybody know. See, this, see how that's different? It's a, it's a whole different take. And by the way, changing religions was generally punishable by death. They did this not, not encouraged, let's put it that way. Right? So you weren't out shopping for religion. In America today, 20% uh, of people change their religion every decade which I think is an amazing number. We're just out shopping for religions. We say, oh, I like this one, oh, I'll go with that one, oh, I don't know, I'll be an atheist. And by the way, people move from atheist to being a religious to being an atheist again. It's, it's really, we're just shopping around, right? And my favorite example is, of course, uh, the Unitarians. We never know what they are. Are they atheists? It's hard to tell, <laughs> right? As my, my Old Testament lit professor always said, the Unitarian church is where atheists gather to pray. And I think there's some, some fundamental, like, correct essence there. But, 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 but you have every possible choice, which is terrifying. And it throws us into this void from which we've never been able to recover. The only time we ever recover is when we live in a theocratic or a fascist or a totalitarian state, when we're, that problem is solved for us. Do what we're, you're told, which is say, live correctly, or we shoot you. By the way, we love this. We absolutely love this. I, I hate to say that, but, but it, it recurs so often in history, it clearly feel fills a fundamental human need. To, to know I'm doing the right thing. I want to know, which is admirable, how do I know I'm doing the right thing? I desperately want to know. And so when an outside power structure tells you this is the right thing to do, then we're like, oh, that's great. I feel confirmed. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm liberated from doubt and struggle and the worst possible thing, self-reflection. Oh, God, self-reflection. Not that. Right? Anything but making me think. That's just the worst. Right? And, so, and so you get this recurrent pattern where we just want to belong to a group. Again, all good examples come from the National Football League. Um, and so if you look at sort of people going to football games, it's one thing to go to a football game, but why do they all have to dress the same? Right? It's weird. It's not, it's not a law per se. Uh, historically speaking, it would be mostly a law. But no, you really want to dress a particular way if you're going to a football game so that you people know what team you associate with. And that makes us feel good communally because we go, all these people are with me and those people in the other colored jersey are against me. And that makes us happy. The extreme version of this, of course, is, is, is soccer in Europe, which is communist football, by the way. Uh, soccer in Europe where the fans fight, right? You have the big, big riots in the stand. The soccer players don't fight, right? They're perfectly fine with each other. But the group identity is built through conflict. Who don't we like? We don't like those people, so let's fight them. Yes, that's total, that's human history in a nutshell. Give us somebody to fight and we'll get, come together communally and then we'll be happy. Um, all the uh, anthropological records, by the way, show this is the point of stoning people to death. That when you get to stone somebody to death as a community, it makes everyone happy and builds a sense of communal identity. It's, 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 it brings joy to the, which is horrible to say, and I'm, I'm just, but it brings joy to the community because now we know we're good and they're bad. And we do it, you do it communally. We're all in this together. Isn't this wonderful? We've, we've got rid of it. What have we got rid of? Someone who for some way or another was making us rethink things. Maybe it's okay to wear different clothes. Maybe it's okay to marry someone outside my religion. Maybe it's okay to loan money at interest. 
We've gotten more okay with that one. Um, you know, that, but, 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 but that, that breaking of codes and laws, if you don't enforce it, then it becomes a question. If those people can loan money at interest, why can't I? Is it now wrong or is it right? And so what happens when you get this question, by the way, again, same thing happens in China, um, is not an answer, but the desperate desire for an answer. It induces a need that really didn't exist before. And people tend to look back uh, at pre-agrarian civilization, they look how happy and how communal and settled and sort of at peace they seem. They're like, yes, it's true, because they haven't entered the existential well. They haven't, they haven't had to stop and say, oh, should I be a hunter-gatherer? Should I be a stockbroker? <laughs> right? They don't, they, you know, they don't sit in school for 12 years while people bore them to tears. <laughs> Ask him, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, I was thinking of digging yams, but I think I'm going to go for hunting the deer, right? No, it is, you're just, you, or you're going to do whatever is necessary for the communal survival so you feel like you belong because you belong. You have a place. Everybody has a place or, or everybody dies. So that just sucks a lot of the stress and worry and lack of identity and self-doubt just goes away. It's beautiful, but notice it's also constraining. Yeah, you're, 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 you're stuck in that world. And what's odd is as soon as you give these people a choice, they almost invariably choose, oh, let's move to a city. Let's, let's get a TV. They love TVs. Everybody loves TVs. It's very strange. But, you know, let's, the modern appliance. Let's, let's go to the future. I had a student when I was an undergrad. I was taught at a writing center. And they, it was when they were moving the Mongs, from uh, Vietnam and Laos to the United States. And his village had three metal implements, which were, they were amazed that they had three metal implements. And then the government came to them and said, we're relocating you. And they walked for nine days through the jungle onto the first vehicle they'd ever seen, which was a bus, which they rode for 16 hours to the airport where they got on a 747 and flew to Los Angeles. Think about that, <laughs> right? So he's about 12 at the time, and he said, never seen anything. And then one day you get on a 747, he says, that blows your mind. <laughs> he says, totally, and so he had traveled, and his people had traveled, you know, several hundred miles, and whatever, 5,000 years of history in three days. And I said, well, do you ever miss it? He says, yes and no. He says, one, we were just us. There was no them. It was just us. But now that I know, I don't think I could go back. Even if there was a back to go to, which there isn't. Um, and, and of course, the great story here is the Garden of Eden. How do you get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? You eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Once you have knowledge, oh, you're doomed. You're just doomed. Right? It's, it's, it's just once you know, ah, there he is. Yeah, rats. Right? But you can't go because you can't unknow. You can't like, well, I'm just going to forget all this and go back. And so once the question is asked, well, it's all over. We're just sort of doomed. Unless you get something like the Dark Ages, by the way. This is what the Dark Ages were. People forgot that this question had been asked. And so they lapsed back into roughly total ignorance. Uh, by the way, in the Western world, I was just talking about this before the lecture, uh, there was, I think it was in the 900s, the largest library in Europe had about 400 volumes, and Baghdad had several libraries that had more than 100,000 volumes each. So Islam was booming. This is this, but, but in the Dark Ages in the West world, right? They had forgotten that you had all these questions. 
and, and they just lapsed back. But then the Renaissance happened and we remembered. And then you got chaos, because we remembered that there's questions. And roughly that's where we are today. We're stuck in this swamp of questions. So how do we respond to this? Like I said, I'm not giving you answers per se, but philosophically, intellectually, personally, how do we respond to this? One, remember, I would suggest, yes, you're doomed. Once you know that there's a possibilities, there's no escaping that. I think we have this dream that, oh, I'm going to make a decision and it's going to transform my life into this seamless, perfect, sort of glowing sphere of light that will be permeated by, permeated by unending goodness and, and I'll know what to do and I'll just be, I'll be transcendent being on earth and my life will be great. I'll have the right job or the right partner or the perfect car, something, something. But it turns out that lasts for, I don't know, not very long. Because we have the human capacity then to go, huh, this is nice, could be nicer. That's great, this is great, this is great. Oh, I'm getting bored, slightly bored, a little more bored, I'm bored. It was great, but now I'm bored. There's, again, there's another problem that we have going back earlier. As I said, go way back to the origins of mankind, we have two really distinctive features. We're communal, order-loving animals that seek novelty and excitement. This is a bad combination. <laughs> right? It's just, it's, 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 it's diametrically opposed. Right? Everybody recognizes this, right? You're like, oh, this is great. I love this order. I know what's happening. This is, and then immediately we're like, ah, oh, I want to change something. And by the way, it's clear that, that, that you see this in kids. Because kids are always best for this because everything is much clearer in them because they're not as good as lying to us or themselves. Um, and so if kids are doing something fun and they start to get bored, they either hit a kid next to them or they smash the toy or, um, you know, as far as I can tell with, with young girls, they start to torture one of the young girls. They select one at random and start torturing them, um, verbally usually, uh, because they're bored. They want to change something. They want something new and different. So yay, 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 board, board, smash, smash, smash. And uh, th there's a lot of human history in this. But so one, notice, yes, you're stuck in this. And I don't think it would, it's reasonable to expect yourself to be unstuck. There's no unsticking from this particular problem once you're there. Once you recognize that you could choose something and that you could choose otherwise, well, pfft, you're doomed. Um, two is we also think we want the answer, which is one reason I'm trying not to give any answers. Uh, and yet we grow and change. This is the other problem with the five pillars and the Ten Commandments. They don't say, oh, when you're young and then when you're older and then when you're middle-aged and then, you know, when you get older, all that. It's just, you know, change, do different things, have different outlooks. No, it's like, here's the rules. One, five, ten, fifty, a hundred, doesn't matter. The rules are the rules are the rules, despite the fact that we're growing and changing all the time. What was great for us when we were 15, eh, probably not so good anymore. Maybe some of it is, but lots of it we've probably given up. But by the way, I'm, obviously I'm a reader, so I like to reread books I've read when I'm young. And sometimes you go, oh, that book actually holds up surprisingly well. And sometimes you're like, oh my God, that book is terrible. I would love that when I was 12. I thought it was the greatest book ever written. It might not be the greatest book ever written, right? You know, that because I've changed. The book hasn't changed. Sometimes it feels like the book is changing, but it's not the book. It's a way of tracking your own change, your own evolution over time. And so the other notion is, well, we want an answer that's going to lift us permanently, again, into that sort of transcendent sphere. Actually, this is pretty much what Socrates says you can achieve. He offers that as a potential outcome. When you have perfect wisdom, well, then you're totally liberated and free, and you don't have all these worries. You always know what to do. I think it's a very seductive idea. Slightly inhuman, probably unreachable, but very seductive, because I just want to know. Um, the, uh, another aspect, so we're stuck and we're changeable. right? Another aspect of this is this notion of sort of 
I'm going to make a decision, and then we feel committed to it. And on one hand, sure, but on the other hand, why? Right? This, this notion is that, oh, I should know. We're terrified of mistakes. I've mentioned this before. We're terrified of mistakes. We call them mistakes. It's possible that we can't make mistakes. Right? We can learn and then go, wow, I wouldn't do that again, so I shouldn't do that now. But we have this sense of, oh, I should know. I've made a decision. I'm committed. I'm there. And then sometimes commitment is great, and it works out, and you make great achievements from it. And sometimes you just realize retrospectively that was just stupidity piled on stupidity piled on error piled on stupidity. The original decision is fine. You didn't know. You ran the experiment great. But sometimes you know. And we're hesitant to let go of that because we're right back to the beginning. If I admit that was a mistake, or I need to make a change, or I should, it was fine then, and I, well, now what should I do again? Oh, that's the worst freaking question. Everybody, everybody knows this is why people keep jobs, because the only thing worse than the job you have is looking for a job, right? We know this. Your job has to get so bad before you quit it, because looking for a job is oh, just terrible. You don't know if you should take the job. It's like, ah, oh, I'll just do anything. Fine. I'll stay here as a slave because anything is worse, right? That, because we don't want to re-enter that void of not knowing, of, of re-asking the question. Well, if that job was no good, what job do I think would be good? Well, how many jobs are there? See, this is the beauty of being in a hunter-gatherer society. There are not a lot of jobs, <laughs> right? You polish up your resume. You go to a couple of tribes and say, is anybody looking for an information management specialist? No. Okay, I can do rock tools. Is that good? You know, yeah, that's, so there's a very limited range of possibilities. And probably you have certain native uh, gifts that are best expressed in very limited way, but we need those gifts. And so we're like, yes, hey, you're good at that. We're gonna have you do, you're gonna do everything else, by the way. But you're definitely gonna do that because we need people who can weave or who are really good at hunting, or are good at fishing, or dig really well, whatever your skill set is. They're valuable, and so we want to exploit it. But notice now, we don't know what our skills are, because how many skills are possible? I mean, people do extraordinary things. It's just amazing, the diversity of possible jobs. So no matter what job you have, you can imagine a job that would be better in some way. Maybe it pays more, hours are different, I work outside more, I work inside more. It's more flexible, I have more challenge, I have less challenge, I have better co-workers. I work in a different place, I know I'll move cities. I don't like this city, I'll move to another city. I don't like that city, I'll move to, right? It's just, where should I live? What should I live? How, how should I dress? It's all, see, it's all up for grabs. And on one hand, we think we love this. On the other hand, I'm not convinced we do. Because it seems like, given the opportunity, we ditch that as fast as we possibly can. <clears throat> Any opportunity to get rid of our freedom, we tend to like, wow, jump on it. Because we hate this question. And so if you've ever felt confused and baffled by the world, blame the fucking Greeks. Because <laughs> we were good until one of them said, how should we live? And they gave 50 answers. <laughs> Right? And so people, oh, the great Greek thinkers. I'm like, yeah, great on one hand, sure. But they gave every possible answer, which is not that helpful. If there were two Greek philosophers, you could go, great. If there were three, maybe. But there was, ah, oh, there's just, there's so many of them, and they all said different things. And they're all contradicting each other. And so, yeah, that's where we are. And so, you know, you can embrace this, which would be my recommendation. Um, but it, it's, it's a struggle. So last note here, um, as we move through this, is to ponder the alternatives, though. Remember always that the alternative to this is to sort of abrogate your human capacity. To say, I don't want to know more about myself or know about my world or more about how I fit into my world or how I should do this or what I'm capable of. So when you stop asking the question, 
What you're really announcing is, I'm done. That's it for me. I want to fix myself here. And sometimes that's, you know, reasonable. But notice what you're saying is, there's no more of me. That's it. I've tapped my potential. I've considered every option. This is it, I'm done. And that, I would always equate that essentially with sort of death. Right? Now you're a living dead person. Because living things always change. They're always growing, adapting. Something is going on. Trees, bushes, flowers. They change, they grow, they do things. We do the same. And when we try and say, no more, I really want an answer to this question, I think fundamentally what we're saying is, I don't want to be human anymore. Most importantly, we're saying, I don't want to be me anymore. I want to just, I just want it to stop. I want me to stop, I want my ideas to stop, I want my emotions to just be fixed. Right? We all have had those days right, where you, you're living your life, things are going on well, and then you wake up one morning and everything in your life sucks. <laughs> Even though it's exactly the same as it was the day before. Right? It's like, what? what uh, ah. That's, it's, it's, it's completely human. It's because you're not the same every day. Now, you probably don't want to change everything in your life that day. You probably want to say, hmm, having a bad day perhaps? Didn't sleep well, shouldn't have had that 11th whiskey. Um, or if you get day after day after day of that, at some point then you have to go, well, all right, something has really changed. It was fine before, now it's not so fine. So what, what's changed? Is it me, is it outside? Some evolution, some combination, which, and then you have to return to this. What do I think the goal of my life is? What am I, what am I looking for? Well, how do I measure what I'm doing? How do I know whether what I'm doing is, is correct? And as irritating and frustrating and time-consuming and emotionally draining as that question can be at times, and, it, and we absolutely have to stop asking it too, by the way. I mean, you, just can't, you ask that continually, it freezes you. So sometimes you have to say, I'm sick of this question, I'm just going to go on with my life for a while, leave me alone. But then you have to return to it. Because to not do that is to simply say, like I said, is I, I'm sort of giving away some significant part of my capacity, my humanity, myself. And that's been the choice that's offered over and over and over and over again. If you do, and, and by the way, institutions, this is what institutions are. Institutions are, are places, for good and ill, that give you the opportunity, if you fit in the institution and do what they say in the way they say to do it, they will provide you with structure and you know, pay and uh, uh, something that tells you you're doing the right thing. And that, but it doesn't make this wrong. It just means this is what all institutions do because that's how they survive as an institution. But that is a trade-off because the institution may tell you to do things or behave in certain ways that really don't correspond with you. I think it's necessary. Very few people fit perfectly in any institution. And this can be a perfectly reasonable trade-off, by the way. Um, it, it's, it's not that that's wrong. For instance, at my job, I have to go to one meeting a year. And I complain about it for about six months. Three months beforehand, I go, I got to go to that damn meeting. And three months afterwards, I talked about how horrible that meeting was. But it's really not that bad, you would think. But I'm not a big meeting person. Uh, you know, it just, it just they irritate me infinitely. Uh, so, but I think that's a reasonable trade-off. But if they said I had to go to a meeting a week, well, that would be a deal breaker. Right? There's no way I can go to a meeting a week. Theoretically, I could, but I just can't. Um, so, you know, that, you know, where those trade-offs happen. But be aware that they're trade-offs. To know you're making trade-offs and compromises. Uh, but it's when we forget, or when, actually, I think more importantly, when we will ourselves to not notice. When we decide that, hey, I'm no longer growing and changing. I no longer want to think about what's the right way to live. Well, that's when, of course, you're sort of, you've capped yourself off and you're done. Um, so last note, one different way to think about this is to say, what is it I'm trying to achieve or goal? I don't know, it's, it's hard to get a right word. What is, 
how do I want my life to feel is, is one way I think about this. You know, what do I want in my mind? What do I want to feel in my day? What do I want to see in my day? Right? How, so, so it's very interesting to me is because um, the Stoics, for instance, and the, the Epicureans had a different emotional goal. They said that you achieve happiness either through detachment, or sort of, detachment's not really the right word, sort of, um, sort of indifference, or do you achieve it through sort of a sense of glowing well-being? Those are very different emotional states, which they talk about a lot, by the way. You know, we tend to think of ethical outcomes and all this, and they, they also tended to talk about how things feel. So I think that's another thing to reflect on. <coughs> what we're doing, but also how does it feel when we're doing it? And, and how is it that I want to feel when I do things? Do I want to feel, you know, wow, enthusiastic, like, wow, this is great. Again, kids are great. You toss them in the air, right? And it's fun, it's fun, it's fun, and then you throw them high enough and it gets terrifying. Right, so what's going on? Nothing has changed, really, but the feeling has changed dramatically. The thrill turns into terror. We tend to like thrill, we tend not to like terror. You know, when does challenge become stress? When does interest become obsession? Those sorts of emotional Aspects. They also talk about it a fair bit because they were interested in every aspect of the human experience, not just the intellectual or the physical, also the emotional. And so I guess the, the conclusion is, yeah, yeah, you're stuck. Um, that, that the only wrong answer probably is to stop asking the question. That once you stop asking the question of how should I live, what should I do, what makes a good life, is my life completely me and mine, the way I would like it to be, then we've sort of squandered this incredible heritage. We sort of, that's when you sort of throw it away, that, that the sort of the pioneers of our history that, that broke this open and sort of threw us into this quagmire or gave us this opportunity to explore this quagmire, you, you decide, um, you know, did an amazing amount of work for us to say, look, all this choices, all this possibility, all this capacity that's in you and that's in the world, available to be explored. And while there's any number of possible answers, probably really choosing one and sticking only with that, without further reflection, um, is really an abrogation of, of the greatest gifts that we've been given, which is human freedom and the, and the impulse towards achieving the capacities that are within us and within our communities. So thank you very much.